This is Campaign 68 from APM Reports. In this chapter, Senator Robert F. Kennedy joins the race, and Democrats gather for their chaotic national convention in Chicago. Our narrator is Stephen Smith. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Robert F. Kennedy was a Democratic U.S. Senator from New York. I run because I am convinced that this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done. And I feel that I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies. Kennedy joined the Democratic nomination contest on March 16th. He would be a candidate for just 82 days. In that brief time, his campaign reflected the passions and the perils of 1968. Thank you very much. The first campaign stop was Kansas, where Kennedy gave a major speech on the Vietnam War. Governor Landon, Governor and Mrs. Docking. Kennedy reminded a crowd at Kansas State University that he had served in the administration of his late brother, President John F. Kennedy. As Attorney General, Robert Kennedy had been his brother's closest advisor. I was involved in many of the early decisions on Vietnam, decisions which helped set us on our present path. It may be that the effort was doomed from the start. If that is the case, then I am willing to bear my share of the responsibility before history and before my fellow citizens. But past error is no excuse for its own perpetration. Tragedy is a fool for the living to gain wisdom, not a guide by which to live. Both Robert Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy faced long odds trying to unseat a party incumbent. But two weeks after Kennedy joined the race, President Lyndon Johnson made a stunning and unexpected announcement on national television. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Rather than face a fight for the party nomination and the possibility of humiliating defeat, LBJ bowed out. And there is this great sense of national euphoria for the next four days, particularly the anti-war people. They felt they'd won. Thurston Clark is author of The Last Campaign, a chronicle of Robert Kennedy's presidential run. He says Lyndon Johnson's decision reshaped the focus of the Democratic race. He also announces a halt to the bombing of North Vietnam and that he's ready to enter into peace negotiations in Paris with the communists. So in a stroke, he kind of gets rid of Kennedy's big two issues, at least the two issues that he'd been pushing until then, which were the unpopular Vietnam War and the unpopular president who was waging it. The first big test for Kennedy was the Indiana primary, where he needed to beat Eugene McCarthy and prove he could run a viable campaign. With the Vietnam issue cooling down... Kennedy had decided that he was going to go back to the really what he'd made his signature issues in the Senate, which were poverty and economic injustice, hunger, and the plight of the American uh, Native Americans. And so that's when he was launching that campaign on April 4th when he flies to Indianapolis. April 4th would be remembered as one of the darkest days of 1968. It also thrust the issue of American race relations to the front of Kennedy's campaign. Memphis police report they have just confirmed that Reverend Martin Luther King has been shot. The shooting incident occurred at a motel where King was staying while in Memphis. Robert Kennedy was scheduled to speak in a black neighborhood of Indianapolis that day. Local authorities warned him not to go. They feared violence. 
Kennedy refused to change plans. Historian Thurston Clark. The crowd waiting for him at 17th and Broadway is about 3,000 people. 2,000 or so probably didn't know about King's being shot or killed. Surrounding them are 1,000 people who do know, and some of them are militants who are armed. They have Molotov cocktails, they have guns, and they're planning to burn the city. Kennedy arrives, walks up to the platform. Kennedy says, do they know about Dr. King? Do they know about Martin Luther King? And the man says, "Uh, well, uh, uh, no, not exactly. Uh, We've left that to you. So now Kennedy has to bring the news of the King assassination to this crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. You could hear from the gasp in the audience that many people have not heard that news. Frank Mankiewicz was Kennedy's press secretary and was with him in Indianapolis. Uh, And he went on to talk about uh, violence and the need to avoid it. And and it was the only time in his entire campaign anywhere that he had ever spoken publicly about the assassination of John Kennedy. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust, of the injustice of such an act against all white people. I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed. He was killed by a white man. A member of my family, it was the closest he could come to saying, my brother, the president. But we have to make an effort in the United States We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Across the nation, American cities erupted. In Baltimore, Chicago, Newark, and more than 100 inner cities, African Americans rioted. But in Indianapolis, Kennedy's speech made the difference, says author Thurston Clark. Indianapolis is one of the only major American cities Uh, despite its poor race relations in 1968, that wasn't struck by riots. 
the Democrats paused their campaigns. Kennedy went to Martin Luther King's funeral, and then he returned to Indiana. At a factory in Terre Haute, workers asked Kennedy about the national unrest. I think that we can't have uh, rioting, can't tolerate violence, and the lawlessness that has existed. I think it uh, destroys the very fabric of our country and our society. As a former attorney general, Kennedy's law and order background appealed to whites in Indiana. There and across the country, many whites felt threatened by the rise of black militancy. They associated mounting urban crime and violence with the black power movement. Kennedy understood that in 1968, many white people resented black demands for greater equality. White people think we passed all of these laws. We passed education laws, we passed the poverty bill, we appropriate a great deal of money for welfare. We've done all of these things. Isn't that enough? Why aren't the black men? Why isn't he satisfied? Kennedy spoke on a national television program from Indianapolis. The black man, on the other hand, the conditions for them are steadily getting worse, not better, despite the programs. It's more difficult to get a job. It's more difficult to get an adequate and satisfactory education for your children. The housing is getting to be more substandard and more dilapidated and more run down. So they've begin to lose hope in society. They see the speeches made by those of us in political life. They say, you talk about it and you say what you're going to do, but nothing ever happens. Kennedy's message was risky. He challenged Indiana's small-town Democrats to care about the seemingly far-away inner cities. The voters of Indiana responded. Now walking into the room and getting a cheer, of course, is Senator Robert Kennedy, a victor, being pressed Next to the door, it's a tremendous jam. Kennedy won the Indiana primary on May 7, 1968, by a healthy margin. He won over blue-collar whites and most of the state's African Americans, beating McCarthy 42 to 27 percent. Kennedy had his first crucial victory. McCarthy's campaign momentum began to flag. And there was yet another Democrat who had entered the race. Here comes the press, here comes the press. When Humphrey is voted in and becomes our president, he will preserve our country. When Lyndon Johnson withdrew from the race, Vice President Hubert Humphrey had an opening to the White House. In the middle of spring, Humphrey jumped into the contest. And here we are just as we ought to be. Here we are, the people. Here we are in the spirit of dedication. Here we are the way politics ought to be in America. The politics of happiness, the politics of purpose, and the politics of joy. And that's the way it's going to be to all the way from here on out. The ebullient Hubert Humphrey was called the happy warrior. But Humphrey's joyful politics struck an odd note in 1968, a point that TV journalist David Brinkley made on NBC. Vice President Humphrey's decision to be the happiness candidate for president is an interesting psychological exercise. There is no doubt people would rather be told good things than bad, but in the recent history of this country, most of what has happened has been bad. War, race riots, inflation, dangers to the dollar, and all the rest of it. Most of the other candidates point to that. Excessive optimism was just one of Humphrey's obstacles to the nomination. The vice president's biggest problem was simply being vice president. 
Humphrey was identified with the deeply unpopular policies of Lyndon Johnson. Well, Mr. President, that's generally the way I start out anything I have to say these days. <laughs> President White, Dr. Harris, and members of this... That became clear when Humphrey made his first presidential campaign appearance on a college campus. After giving a speech at Kent State University in Ohio, Humphrey was about to answer questions when dozens of students stood up and walked out on him to protest the Vietnam War and the draft. Humphrey played it off. My dear friends, we were just testing the exits. They work on both ends of the hall. One of the toughest questions for Humphrey to handle at Kent State and throughout his campaign was whether he would abandon LBJ's policy of escalation in the Vietnam War. I have a delicate role and a delicate road to follow, and I share this intimate thought with you and uh, as best I can. I am the Vice President of the United States. Whatever I say on foreign policy or national security is looked upon as an expression of the government. Well, how easy it would be for me to stand up here and just be a free swinger and have this audience cheer 101 things that you could say. It was a terrible box. You don't find many vice presidents marching out to uh, disagree with their presidents. Ted Van Dyke was a close aide to Hubert Humphrey. He says Humphrey tried several times to pull away from the president and declare his own Vietnam policy. But Lyndon Johnson could be a ruthless and resentful man. He told Humphrey that he would uh, denounce him publicly as playing politics with peace, for endangering the lives of servicemen in Vietnam. And after all, when you are a vice president, it's very difficult if you challenge frontally a a president who says he will destroy you if you issue such a statement. LBJ hated that Vietnam had become known as Johnson's War. Before he left office, he wanted to broker Johnson's peace. LBJ had no intention of letting his own vice president's political fortunes get in his way. Humphrey got into the race late enough in the campaign that he skipped the state primaries. It was a different political system back then. Only 13 states held primaries, and that meant party bosses had tremendous power over who won the nomination. Humphrey concentrated on winning over party stalwarts. That left Kennedy and McCarthy to duke it out for voters in the primaries. California was the final prize and a must-win for Kennedy. On the evening of June 5th, Kennedy campaign headquarters was at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Senator Kennedy has finally arrived here at one of the two big ballrooms. Kennedy won California decisively. In his victory speech, the senator made some weary jokes, thanking supporters and his dog, Freckles. Then he declared, on to Chicago and to the Democratic Convention in August. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Kennedy Press Secretary Frank Mankiewicz was there that night. As Senator Kennedy was finishing his speech, one of our guys came up and said, he's too tired and he doesn't want to go through the crowd. Kennedy usually left a room by threading through the crowd. But this night, he took a back door to the kitchen. A young hotel worker named Sirhan Sirhan was waiting. And uh, that's when we heard the shots. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot in the head. These are Robert Kennedy's press aide, Frank Mankiewicz, as he stepped to the microphones at Good Samaritan Hospital. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 144 
a.m. today, June 6, 1968. We are now looking at the main altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral and lying before it the coffin containing the remains of Robert Kennedy. At the funeral mass in New York City, Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy gave the eulogy for his brother. He concluded with a quotation from Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw that Robert Kennedy often used at the end of a campaign rally. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. When Robert Kennedy was assassinated, the Democrats temporarily suspended their campaigns in respectful silence. Eugene McCarthy never really got back into the race, not wholeheartedly. Humphrey's campaign also seemed to stall. The divided and dispirited Democrats limped through the summer towards their National Party convention. Good evening from the CBS News Convention Anchor Booth in Chicago's International Amphitheater, the site of the Democratic National Convention. The Democrats met on August 26th to choose their 1968 presidential candidate. Robert Kennedy was dead. Eugene McCarthy was well behind in the polls and in the race for delegates. Hubert Humphrey was all but guaranteed the party's nomination. Still, no one thought that the convention would be easy including newsman Eric Severide. This convention rather accurately reflects the divisions and the rawness of the whole country. It's a nervous nation. This is a nervous convention. But few fully anticipated what would happen in Chicago. Carrying a Viet Cong flag, more than 500 marched on police headquarters this afternoon to protest the arrest of new left leader Tom Hayden, an organizer of this Chicago campaign. Anti-war demonstrators from across the country descended on Chicago. Over four days, they clashed in the streets with police and National Guard. I see one guardsman, several guardsmen using their, their rifles as clubs, hitting the demonstrators. There goes more tear gas. There goes a wave of it. There goes a wave of it. The people are engulfed by the tear gas. The demonstration now is over. Where is it then? You check with our state chairman. Bitter divisions over Vietnam were also tearing the Democrats apart inside the convention hall. Why are you taking the man off the floor? The Secret Service told us to get him off the floor. He will not show his identity. Who is the man? I don't know who he is. Stop the war, they're shouting now. Humphrey. This needs 1,311 for nomination. He's got 1,594 by our CBS delegate count. Humphrey earned enough delegates to win the nomination, but Vietnam made his moment of victory reek of defeat. Chicago was a disaster for the Democrats. This is still a volatile convention, as you see here, with this demonstration on the floor. Humphrey aide Ted Van Dyke. If you were a a voter watching on national television, you saw rioting and violence uh, in the city of Chicago. And inside the hall, you said you saw anger and disorder as well. So uh, Democrats came to be perceived as uh, divided, angry, 
uh, in the midst of chaos. That did not, even the, the nature of the convention did not help in the fall election, of course. Presidential nominees usually leave their party's convention with a boost in public opinion polls. Humphrey plunged. And when the 1968 general election campaign commenced in September, the Democratic nominee would face more than just a Republican opponent. 1968 was already one of the most dramatic presidential campaigns of the 20th century, and a gripping second act was yet to begin. This is Campaign 68 from APM Reports. In our next chapter, the Republican candidate Richard Nixon. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, Millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? You can find more speeches, campaign commercials, and profiles of the major candidates at our website, apmreports.org 68. And if you like this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Campaign 68 is a production of American Public Media. Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. I'm Kate Ellis. Thanks for listening.